You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. The Bible reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 to 15. So if you'd like to um, open your Bibles and follow along. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles, Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preach God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I am doing I will continue to do in order to determine, undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. This is the word, word of the Lord. Sweet God, thank you. Therese, it's great to be with you tonight. If you haven't met me, my name is Luke and I'm one of the pastors here. I remember in the early days of City on a Hill, there were two young blokes who joined our church at the same time. Uh, best mates, loved Jesus, were eager to learn, loved studying God's word and threw themselves into the life of the church straight away, got involved, started serving, all of that kind of stuff. And they were just just fantastic guys. And one of these blokes became a pastor, but the other one actually drifted away from the church eventually. And I, and I asked his mate what had happened to his, to his friend, and he explained that his mate had actually fallen into a cult. Uh, he'd tell me about the conversations, the desperate conversations he'd have with this guy, pleading with him and pointing him back to the truth and, and trying to talk through the theology and expose the lies that this guy had started to believe, but it just wouldn't work. This guy was lost to this cult. Uh, sometimes later he actually left the cult, but he also pretty much left the Christian faith as well. Uh, turned out that joining this cult was part of a much larger sort of mental breakdown, a kind of dissociative disorder that had fractured everything in his life. And from that point, he just kind of detached from, from it all. He couldn't handle any uh, deep emotional or spiritual question, intellectual question. 
And really, it was just so sad to watch, really hard to see someone get led astray and to fall into, to be seduced by false teaching. And that's really what's happening in our passage today, 2 Corinthians 11. We're in the final section of 2 Corinthians, uh, which is taken up with Paul's desperate pleas, desperate attempts to protect the church at Corinth from some false teachers. He calls them the super apostles because they set themselves up against the actual apostles. They boast of great spiritual experiences. They promise power and influence for anyone who will follow their message. And by comparison, Paul and his message seemed a little bit flat, a little bit old hat. He had a very simple preaching style and all he really spoke about was the gospel. So the super apostles had displaced Paul in the affections of some uh, in the church. This is all really hurtful for Paul. He'd planted this church. He'd discipled these people. He says in chapter 7, you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. He had given himself wholly to these people. He poured himself out for these people. And now they just kind of left him for something new and shiny. But he's not just hurt. He's actually alarmed because he can see how dangerous these super apostles are. We're going to see in this passage that Paul's language is incredibly strong. These super apostles are proclaiming another Jesus, verse 4, with a different spirit, a different gospel. It's, it's essentially a whole other religion. They're false apostles, verse 13, deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. In fact, they're basically servants of Satan, verse 15, and so God will ultimately judge them. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So he's not holding back. And so really what we have in this passage is a showdown between the apostle, the true apostle, and the super apostles. And as we look at this, I think we're actually going to also see the nature and the danger of false teaching. And I want us to think about how we can identify it today and how we should respond to it. So first of all, we have this showdown, the apostle versus the super apostles. And Paul is desperately trying to protect these guys. In fact, he has what he calls in verse 2 a divine jealousy for the people of Corinth, for the church of Corinth. Uh, We often talk about the words jealousy and envy and sort of see them as interchangeable, but they're actually a little bit different. Envy is about wanting something that someone else has, but jealousy is wanting to keep what you already have. And sometimes that can be a good thing. It can be the kind of thing that seeks to protect something that you have. And so in Exodus 34, we see that God is a jealous God. He describes himself as a jealous God because he wants to protect his people from false gods. He wants to keep them for himself and make sure that they don't fall into sin. And so Paul says that he has a divine jealousy for the Corinthians. I'm jealous over you with the jealousy of God. In fact, he's almost like, the father of the bride. In fact, that's the analogy that he uses here. I've betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. In our culture, when we have, uh, when someone gets married, we have an engagement and then we have a wedding uh, sometime down the track. It was similar in Jewish culture, but a little bit more intense. They would have a betrothal ceremony and then the marriage ceremony 12 months later. And being betrothed back then was a little bit like a cross between an engagement and a wedding today. You couldn't live together until the wedding ceremony, but legally you were treated as husband and wife as soon as you were betrothed. So the only way to to come out of that engagement uh, was through divorce or through death. And so it was vital that there was faithfulness between the betrothal point and the wedding ceremony. 
And it was the responsibility of those around the bride and the groom to make sure that that happened. And it was the responsibility of the father of the bride to keep his daughter chaste or pure up to that point. Now, Paul is using this analogy to describe the relationship between Jesus and the church at Corinth and his own place in that relationship. The church is the bride of Christ. That's the picture that we get in Revelation 19, that we are, Jesus is waiting for us, so to speak, at the, at the front of the church, and he can't wait to see us in splendour, come forward to greet him. That's what he's looking forward to. And so in the moment now, we are sort of betrothed to him. We have this wedding ceremony coming, but right now we're betrothed to him. And so Paul sees it as his job to protect the church until that day. I've betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin in Christ. It's his job to try and keep them spiritually pure until the day they meet Jesus. And that's why he's so anxious about these super apostles. He senses that these guys are, it's like a a man, a cad who's come onto the scene, a seducer who's going to try to take them away. This is the love of a concerned parent. I mean, his daughter, so to speak, is engaged to this lovely bloke called Jesus, caring and humble and generous, do anything he can to serve them. But for some reason, she's been drawn away to the bad guy who's showy but has no substance. And in fact, more than that, he's a total dropkick. In verse 20, we're told that he's domineering, he takes advantage of them, he belittles them. And so Paul is like desperately trying to protect them. Don't fall for this guy. Stay pure. And then he sees an opportunity to explain that Jesus has the right motives for them and that these super apostles do not. And that is the issue of ministry and money. Uh, This issue has come up a few times in the letter so far. Paul had chosen not to take money from the Corinthians, sustaining himself by other means. So he'd worked as a tent maker while he was in Corinth and he'd also been given money from other churches. Verse 9, the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. And this was really a pastoral decision. You see, theologically, Paul didn't have a problem with receiving money for ministry. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But he'd chosen not to do this with the Corinthians. We have not made use of this right, he says, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. He wanted to remove any sense of obstacle, any problem between them and the gospel. He wanted to make sure that they would hear the gospel with an open mind. So he didn't charge any money for what he was doing, didn't ask for money from them. However, this had actually become a bit of a problem. In fact, you could even say that it was putting obstacles in the way of them receiving him. For a start, some people might have seen it as a little bit rude. In ancient times, if you offered generosity to someone and they didn't take it, it was seen as a little bit ungrateful. And so he says in verse 11, why, why do we not take money from you? Is it because we don't love you? No, 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 God knows that we love you. More seriously, it had opened him up to accusations of financial impropriety. Some people just couldn't believe that he wouldn't take money, and so they assumed that he was finding some other way of getting the money. You might remember a couple of weeks ago, we learned that Paul was going around all the churches of the Mediterranean collecting money for the church at Jerusalem to support them. And so some people said, oh, maybe he's actually just pocketing that money. He says that he's raising money for the church, 
but he's actually just taking it for himself. And so actually in chapter 8, Paul does this long explanation of all of the careful ways that he's looking to protect the money and doing it responsibly. It actually sounds very like the City on a Hill cash handling policy that all our staff are bound to. Uh, Andrew got, oh no, Andrew's not here, but he would have loved that. So he's trying to protect himself in this way. But the other problem that Paul is facing is that by not taking money, people are starting to question the value of his message. You see, as we saw last week, this was the age of the great orator, amazing speakers, skilled in rhetoric, the celebrities of the age, glamorous, showy, immortalised in statues like movie stars, and they could demand massive fees for their speaking engagements. William Barclay says there never was an age in which a man who could talk could make so much money. And however much money you made pointed to your status. I was reading the other day that Bill Clinton could, uh, can get as much as two hundred fifty or $500,000 just for one speaking engagement. That's because of his status. People want to hear what he has to say. And so it was in the first century as well. The more impressive you were, the more people were willing to pay for you. And so money represented your status. And so by the same token, if you didn't charge anything, it made it seem like you weren't valuable and your message didn't matter. And so now these super apostles are looking at Paul and saying, look, this guy doesn't even charge anything. So why would you bother listening to him? So Paul faces a problem. What does he do to respond to this? Well, he actually flips it because in not taking money, he is trying to show them the wonders of his message, the importance and the beauty of the gospel. See, first of all, Paul understands that financial ties can compromise the speaker. For one thing, you need to keep the people entertained. The speakers of these days would kind of get patrons, subscribers, so to speak, like Netflix. And so there's, const there's constant pressure for them to come up with new stuff that's more entertaining, more dramatic, more controversial to keep people interested. And in fact, this is one of the, the techniques that the rhetoricians, they're called, they used to use. They were trained not just to speak, but also to listen. And so as they were speaking, they would kind of gauge the audience and see how they were going and then tailor their message to keep them entertained. So they were always trying to edit what they were saying to keep people with them. And so Paul can see the danger of this. He believes that he has the most important message that there is, the gospel, the good news of Jesus. He doesn't want to edit that. He'll try to make sure that it's relevant for everyone and he'll apply it in different ways, but he won't edit it. He won't change his message. And he also senses that if he relies on people's money, he could be compromised because he might hold back from saying the things that he feels he needs to say doesn't want to lose anyone, doesn't want to antagonise anyone. And so to get rid of the whole temptation and the danger, he chooses not to take money at all. He maintains his independence. He says, oh, we are not peddlers of God's word like other people. We don't use this God's word to, to just make money. We'll get rid of it all so that we can just say the truth. That's what he says in verse 6, that he is unskilled in speaking. The word tra translated unskilled is idiotus. I think you can tell what that means. <laughs> he's not saying that he's an idiot. What he's saying is he's choosing not to use the skills 
of rhetoric. He's choosing not to edit his message. He's choosing just to say what God has called him to say. 1 Corinthians 1, we preach Christ crucified. He acknowledges that it's a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So he holds on to that. He says the things that are hard to say, hard to hear, because he knows that it's right to say and because the gospel offers hope. But I also think that he does this because he wants to embody his message as well. As we're saying, Corinth was a very showy place. It was all about glitz and glamour. And the false apostles embodied all of this with their expensive message. Their goal was to be self-sufficient, to not have to do any other work. Certainly, you'd never want to do any work with your hands if you were an orator. But Paul challenges all of this. He works as a tent maker. And as he's doing this, he's trying to show them the character of Jesus himself. So you see, Paul is lowering himself, humbling himself, just like Jesus humbled himself. You see, Jesus had all of the riches of heaven, comfort and glory and worship, but he gave them up to serve us, 2 Corinthians 8. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Paul makes himself poor to point to Jesus and how Jesus made himself poor. Paul serves the Corinthians because he wants them to know that Jesus will serve them. And because Paul was willing to do this, he created a distance, a contrast between himself and the super apostles. See, where he was willing to serve them, they looked to lord it over everyone else. Where Paul gave, they took. If Paul, to continue the analogy, was the father of the bride, then these guys were just gold diggers, con men looking for a quick buck. And so really this is how we can assess a leader. You assess them by what they say, but also how they approach their ministry. Are they in it for you or for themselves? Are they there to serve you or to lord it over you? Paul shows his character, and in so doing, he points to the gospel, the message that he's saying. He will serve just as Jesus will serve. So we see this contest between the true apostle and the super apostles, but then we also see this other dynamic. See, as I look at this passage, I think, why on earth would the Corinthians fall for these guys? We know later on in 11 verse 20 that they're just really dodgy guys, they're abusive. So why can't they see through it? Why wouldn't they just reject them? Well, it's ultimately because these guys said something that they wanted to hear. There was a promise at the end of all of their teaching that they had embraced. We don't know exactly what these false teachers taught, but from what we can tell, they were basically trying to mix Judaism with Christianity. So they spoke about Jesus, they recognised Jesus and what he had done, but they also suggested that that wasn't enough. 
And so they, they turned everyone's eyes back to the old covenant, what we call in the Old Testament, the Jewish laws, the Jewish heritage. And they said, Jesus is a good starting point, but you actually still need to keep the laws. And if you keep those laws, then you'll experience more of God. You'll experience more of his power. You have these dramatic spiritual experiences. As Scott Haifman writes, writes, Paul's opponents promised more of the spirit to those who would keep more of the law. So they were saying, Jesus plus these other things will get you saved. But in doing so, they're compromising the truth. See, Jesus is enough. We don't need anything else. Ephesians 2, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. By grace you have been saved through faith. See, we can't save ourselves. We, we sin. We fall short of God's glory. We can't save ourselves by our own works. We can only be saved by what Christ has done in living a perfect life on our behalf and dying for our sins. And we receive this, we, we, we grab a hold of this by faith. There is this gift of life and salvation that God has for us and we grab it, we entrust ourselves to Jesus. We see it there and we take it for ourselves. But even this faith is not to our credit, it is the gift of God so that no one may boast. That's the gospel. And in adding to that gospel... These guys are destroying it. They're suggesting that Jesus isn't sufficient. And so really, what they're saying is a different gospel, as Paul says. They told the gospel, but it's a different gospel. They proclaim Jesus, but it's an insufficient Jesus. They promised the Spirit, but it's a different Spirit to the Holy Spirit. In verse 15, they disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. They sound like they're on about all the right things, but actually they're destroying the message. But what's so telling about them is that they speak with cunning. Verse 3, he suggests that they speak with the cunning of the devil. See, it's not that they just kind of went straight out and said something completely dodgy. They spoke close to the truth, close enough to trick people, close enough to ensnare and deceive. It's really interesting how Paul likens them to the serpent and the serpent's encounter with Eve in Genesis 3. Because I think if we see at that passage, if we look back at that passage, we see how the devil can continue to work as well. Uh, Warren Wearsby looks at Genesis 3 and he describes the devil's strategy as a three-step three -step strategy. First, the devil questions God's words. So God had made himself very clear to Adam and Eve that they should not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But now the devil comes to Eve and questions this. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He's trying to create doubt and suspicion. And that actually starts to work immediately with Eve. She repeats God's instructions. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the tree of the tree, uh, fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. But then she adds to it, neither shall you touch it. Now God didn't say that, but she's added to it. See, the devil's questioning of God's words has made her start to question, to start to edit what God has said, and then the devil seizes the opportunity. He says in Genesis 3 verse 4, you will not surely die. 
here we see the second step of the devil's strategy. First, he questions God's words, then he denies it. He goes completely against it. You will not surely die. He, he's undercutting what God has said. He's saying there's, there's no consequences for sin. And then he goes to the third step. He substitutes God's words for his own. He offers his own interpretation. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of the tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Really what he's saying is that God is selfish. God is power hungry. God is a killjoy. God is limiting you. And if you just follow me, if you listen to me instead, then you'll find a fuller, bigger, happier life. He's actually suggesting that he is kind of the saviour, the giver of life and a better giver of life than the creator himself. And Adam and Eve are seduced. They fall for it. And really, the super apostles are using the same tactics in Corinth. As D.A. Carson notes, Eve switched allegiances from God to the devil when she was offered an exalted position. You can be like God. And that's exactly what the super apostles were offering the Corinthians. If you follow this, you can have all of this spiritual status. You can have these spiritual experiences. You can have a bigger life. So it's the same tactic again and again. And really, the devil continues to use the same tactics. There's lots of people that we can listen to who will question what God has said. Did God actually say sex outside of marriage isn't a problem? And then they'll deny God's words. It, it doesn't matter if you do this. There's no consequences. And then we'll start to question if God is being fair to us. It's a bit harsh, isn't it? And then we're primed to hear the words that the devil substitutes. Follow your heart. Do what's best for you. You be you. You be all that you can be. The devil is offering us this fuller vision, this bigger life, a counterfeit. This is the cunning of the devil, and so we must be on guard. As Carson says, if the Corinthians could be deceived in the first century, why would we think that we could be exempt? We are just as vulnerable as they were. So we need to be on guard checking what the devil is doing. But even more than that, we need to be checking ourselves. So as I said, the great skill of these orators was not just in their speaking, what they said, but in how skilled they were in listening and tailoring their message. They said what people wanted to hear. The, the, the people in Corinth wanted to hear that they could get special status with God. And we will want to hear certain things too. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4 to his protege Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. See, God will judge the speaker, verse 15, their end will correspond to their deeds, but he will also judge the listener. I love that picture. We have itching ears. There's, there's stuff that we want to hear. We're not satisfied until we hear a certain message. 
And so we accumulate for ourselves someone who will affirm what we're looking for. We define the gospel for ourselves. What is the good news that we want to hear? What is the message that we are vulnerable to that might be false? Tim Keller said, if, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshipping an idealised version of yourself. And so we need to assess what we're hearing and what we want to hear. There's lots of false gospels and false Jesuses on offer for us. Which are the ones that we might be drawn to? One of the first ones that we might be drawn to is the gospel of Jesus plus. This really is what was happening in Corinth. This idea that you have to contribute to your salvation. Again, of course, this is not true. We're saved by what Christ has done, not by what we do. But it has an enduring appeal for people right through the ages. Sometimes it's an appeal. It's appealing to us because of our pride. We want the opportunity to contribute to our salvation. We want to prove ourselves to God. Put him in our debt, actually. So it's sometimes out of pride, but also it can be out of fear. See, the message that we are saved by grace alone, that we don't have to do anything to earn our salvation, that sounds outrageous. And it is hard for us to actually believe that. And so we, we are willing to add something to that, even just to make sure. And so we do trust in Jesus, but maybe not entirely. We also trust in what else we do. Really, this is the gospel of Jesus plus, and it makes us vulnerable to anyone who will offer that kind of assurance. Just recently, I heard about a cult that's active here in Melbourne called Shinjionji. It comes originally from South Korea, uh, from a guy called Manhan Lee, and it was uh, has a very large following, 450,000 members across more than 100 countries, and they're actually expecting to pretty much double in size this year as they ramp up their efforts. They recruit members from all over the place. They go to churches to recruit members. They also go to supermarkets. I was reading something the other day about uh, someone who was approached at High Point. In fact, there was someone in our service this morning who used to be in this cult. So they're active around us. You may well bump into them. And the way they approach people is they invite them to a small Bible study group. If that goes well, you'll be invited to a larger Bible study class, which will meet maybe two or three times a week for 12 months. And all of this sounds perfectly good, doesn't it? It's, this is the cunning of the devil. It sounds like something you'd want to be a part of if you're a Christian. And at first they just teach orthodox stuff, but over time it starts to bring in their own special brand of teaching that Jesus isn't actually God, that the second coming has already begun, that you'll only be saved if you're part of this cult. And they couch it in the parables of Jesus. They suggest that there's all these mysteries that only man he Lee can reveal to you. And then they cut you off from the rest of uh, your voices around you. They cut you off from those who would reveal the lies of what they're saying, others who are, have a broader picture of theology. And you think, how does someone get stuck in this? Well, it's because it offers some sense of certainty. See, if you're worried about your salvation, you want to feel sure that you've done enough. You want to feel sure that you're worthy of God's love. 
You want something tangible. See, to me, going somewhere for a study three times a week for, for a year, that sounds a lot. That's probably too much for me. But for lots of people, it feels like I'm taking control of my eternal destiny. So it's attractive. So be careful. You know, maybe you struggle to truly understand grace, to truly rest in that. You could be vulnerable to someone who, verse 15, disguises themselves as a servant of righteousness, who offers you the hope of getting to God, but is actually taking away that hope by suggesting that you can get to God yourself. So there's the gospel of Jesus plus, and then there's the gospel of cheap grace. See, some of us are drawn to works religion, and some of us are drawn to a kind of lazy religion. Yes, we're saved by grace. We trust in the work of Jesus. But as Martin Luther said, we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. What he's saying is that, yes, we're saved by faith, but then when that happens, Everything else starts to change as well. Our whole lives change. We have what we call sanctification, this progressive change in our lives as we put sin to death and live to righteousness. Now, this can be a really uncomfortable experience. Like the Christian life isn't lived on cruise control. And so if someone comes to you offering an easier message, you might be vulnerable to that. The idea is that Perhaps you can reduce the demands of God. Perhaps you can have Jesus plus that sin that you just can't get rid of, that you'd really like to keep. Perhaps you can have Jesus as your saviour, but you don't have to have him as your Lord. And, of course, this is cloaked in religious language. You don't want to be judgmental. You don't want to be legalistic. But really it's just taking you down a path of lazy Christianity. And it actually throws our faith into question. You see, Jesus died, uh, showed not just that he has dealt with the penalty of our sin, but he also came to deal with the power of our sin. He came to give us forgiveness and also change from our sin. And so if you don't want both of those things, you might not have either of them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer called this the, the promise of cheap grace in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. Now he writes, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. By contrast, costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It's the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It's the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. This is, he says, the only true path, but he also promises that it's the best path. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, but it's grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. See, Jesus died to give us life. And so if we want that life, we need to embrace all of it. So we have this gospel of Jesus plus the gospel of cheap grace, and then we have the, the gospel of spiritual status. Again, that's what one of the big things was here in Corinth, this promise that they could have spiritual experiences and then they could uh, attain a higher status, a better place 
in the community and with God himself. And there's, that's a still a very present uh, temptation for us. For some, this might be through dramatic spiritual experiences. Uh, in the 90s, there was this thing called the Toronto Blessing, which lots of churches were into, and kind of offering these dramatic moments, and it was intoxicating for people because it, people want to feel special. Now, I suspect most of us aren't at risk of that Toronto blessing. We keep our seatbelts on even during the singing. But I feel like we could easily be vulnerable to elevating knowledge. For some people, it could be knowledge in a specific field of theology. So there's, I know lots of people, for instance, who spend an inordinate amount of time uh, studying end-time theology, for instance, kind of uh, getting out charts and making timelines and there can be value in this, right? Because Jesus told us to prepare to be ready for his return. But I wonder sometimes if we just get lost in speculation or people just want to have more knowledge than the next person. I think I'm personally susceptible to intellectualism. Um, I am a total nerd. Like I say this and people don't actually believe how much of a nerd I am, but I, it really it's, it's a thing. Like I just love learning things, right? I love reading. At the moment I'm reading like a whole series of books on US presidents and I don't just read these books. I have to take notes like I'm studying for an exam. So I have like all these files of notes from these books I've read. My wife thinks I'm crazy and I probably am. And I can take the same approach to the Bible. I can be a nerd about it. I love studying it, opening up the commentaries, working out what's being said, Gaining knowledge. That's a good thing. But it's not enough. See, I can learn but not apply. I can accumulate knowledge but not see much progression in godliness. And, in fact, I I think sometimes I can hide in the accumulation of knowledge. I remember being part of a small group at another church, a Bible study group, and it was chock full of nerds like me, uh, people who'd studied at Bible college, people who'd had ministry experience, professionals, you know, doctors and so on. And the discussions we had were very high level. Like, how does this link back to the Old Testament? And uh, discuss debates on obscure theological issues like infralapsarianism or something like that. That was a good word, wasn't it? Good one for Scrabble. <laughs> now, some of these discussions were beneficial But after a while, I realised that we were probably just hiding. See, we would spend so long crapping on about the the passage and all of these obscure things that we would often not have time to actually apply the passage. And I realised that we were actually just trying to fill up the time so that we wouldn't have to do that. We were learning, but we weren't applying. Our minds grew but our hearts stayed the same size. So we can be vulnerable to spiritual status. It might be spiritual experiences or it could be something just like knowledge and intellectualism. So there's some of the Gospels. Let me offer another one that I think is particularly relevant for this moment in time, and that is the Gospel of Social Action. I'll call this the Woke Gospel. You've probably heard that word woke before and you might have wondered what exactly it refers to. Basically, it's about social justice and being awake to injustice and oppression. 
and then seeking to change that by breaking down the structures and the systems that are causing this. So eliminate the causes of racism, for instance, or poverty or sexism and protect the vulnerable, all of those kinds of things. Now, as Christians, there's lots here that we should embrace, right? We share God's heart, so we should show that in the world. Micah 6, he's told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And Jesus said that when we face the Father, he'll be asking us, did you look after those who were poor, who were hungry, who were struggling? Right? That's what God is looking for us to do. And yet I think we have to be very discerning about how we approach this. See, within woke theology, for instance, When people are breaking down these structures, these wrong structures, they also seek to break down God's structures. So we break down not just oppression, we also seek to break down sexuality, the structures of marriage or the structures of gender itself. It's all got to go because all of it is seen as oppressive. So we could easily find ourselves being caught in a situation where we're breaking down good things and not just bad. But there's something else underneath this that I think is particularly risky for us. See, wokeness identifies the problem, but the solutions lead either to pride or to despair. See, it encourages shows of virtue, dramatic things that you can do, or very simplistic things that lack real significance. So as long as you're liking the right cause on Facebook, you've done enough. Or it lays crushing demands on you that you can never fulfil. You're always being asked to do the work, but the work is never completed. You're always being told to do better, but you'll never be good enough. And so it leaves people divided and there's no hope of reconciliation. But in the gospel, we find something better. We find, first of all, the humility to own our sin and to say sorry because we genuinely feel convicted. And then we experience the grace of forgiveness, first from God, but then also from those we have sinned against because the forgiveness of Christ has inspired them to offer forgiveness. And because of this, we find true reconciliation. Galatians 3, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. That's what we're called to strive for, and that's what we can find in the gospel. So when we have all of these other false gospels, and there's lots more out there, none of them will reach the mark. And so instead we need to remember the true gospel and the beauty of what we have. Warren Wearsby says Satan is ultimately an imitator. He copies what God does and then tries to convince us that his offer is better than God's. So he'll offer us these other Gospels that we might be tempted by, that we might want to hear, but they'll always fall short of the truth. I started today talking about someone who ended up in a cult. Let me finish with someone who came out of a cult. My wife and I had dinner with some dear friends on Friday night who spent the first 30-plus years of their life in a cult. They were part of the Exclusive Brethren. That's where they met, that's where they got married. It was their whole life. 
everything was in this community. But in the hardest time of their life, when they most needed help and support, they found nothing in this group and they were desperate. So they said, look, why don't we just go to another church, just see what's around the corner. They just found one just close to where they lived, just walked in and that night they heard the gospel, the true gospel for the first time. They heard that it wasn't about what they did but what Jesus had done that even though they felt their sin, that sin could be forgiven. They found the truth and the truth set them free. That's what we have. We have the good news of Jesus. So let's be jealous for it. Let's treasure it. Let's protect it. Let's proclaim it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the truth, the truth about us, which is humbling, that we're sinners and we need you. But thank you too for the truth about you, the truth about Jesus, that you came to give us life, that you laid down your life to pay for our sin and you rose again to give us a new life with your spirit, true change. Lord, thank you for this truth. May we believe it. May we believe it afresh. If there's anyone here tonight who's never believed it, may tonight be the night where they entrust themselves to you. And for those who have heard it many times before, may we feel it again. May we be jealous for this truth and protect it and proclaim it so that others can hear it. We thank you for the example of Paul who proclaimed your gospel, who committed himself to that. We commit ourselves to, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.